You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Milwaukee. Also representing ESPN Little Chute today. Uh, thanks for that suggestion. Uh, Little Chute's where? Like by Appleton, I think? I'm not 100% sure. Um, Are you saying Little Chute or Little Shoot? C-H-U-T-E. Little Shoot? Is it Shoot? Chute? Yeah, Chute? I feel like that's a, that's, it, a, that's, a, that's an SCH sound, right? Why is it an SCH sound? I feel like it should the be word a shoot. The word shoot, that's how you pronounce shoot, right? What is a shoot? Shoots and ladders? But isn't shoots and... Is is that C-H-U-T-E? I feel like I... Yeah, yeah C-H-U-T-E right there. Is it really? That's yeah. wild. Hmm. Yeah. I never See, we're, we're learning things. Uh, that's great. Don't, yeah. Or at least you're learning things. Yeah. I don't know if our listeners are learning things, but apparently you know. I am. Jeez, what, <laughs> what am I doing with my life? I mean, imagine if you rolled into a bar in Little Shoot and you said, "Oh, Little Shoot, great to be here," and then you know oh, they be break furious. a beer bottle over, yeah, break yeah. a beer bottle over your head or something like that. I mean, yeah, it'd be offensive. No, yeah, I don't need that. Exactly. That's By the way, point. now somebody's gonna chime in and say, "Actually, Little, Sh- it's Little Shoot." Um, I think, but you're, hey, you're probably, whatever. You sound right. You seem yeah. you seem very confident, in, so I'm yeah, gonna go I'm with confident. you. All right, excellent. Um, all right, joining me as always is Frank Madden, is schooling me on shoot and how to say it. Uh, he is the founder of Brew Hoop and, you know, just looking out for me. So he's my good friend. Frank, how you doing? You know, happy wife, happy life, they say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with a wife who is a Rockets fan, uh, a, a four-month-old daughter who's a Rockets fan, uh, the Rockets onesie <laughs> Worked its wonders tonight. Uh, <laughs> my daughter Matilda had her Rockets onesie. Didn't work game one. That's okay. Uh, we went back to it after they lost uh, without her wearing it um, the other day. So uh, so she was back in the Rockets onesie tonight, and the Rockets won. And uh, so so yeah, good good for that. You know, I don't I <laughs> I, I don't know if I am going to say the Rockets are favored to win this series, but um, you know, for all those who thought this would be a sweep or a five game. Gentlemen, super whatever. I'm I'm happy at least that the uh, the Rockets are are making it at least entertaining and and we finally got a close game in the conference finals. So that Who knew? was uh, Who knew it was possible? a nice a nice change of pace. And you know, it's just kind of one of those things. Like you know, I, I mean, people like us, we always we're always trying to say, oh, if this this has to happen in order for this event to occur, right? For the Bucks to win, they need so and so to do so and so, right? And I mean, tonight, what a weird game. The Rockets get, you know, pretty good nights from Chris Paul and James Harden and nothing else from anybody else. Maybe maybe some shots from Eric Gordon. And in spite of that, they somehow go into Golden State and win on the road, which, let's be honest, you should not be able to score 95 points and beat the Golden State Warriors in Oakland. But, um, I don't know, game on, right? Game on yeah. for that series. And, like, crazy short rotations from both sides. Like, 
I what did Draymond end up playing like 44, 45? Like just a, I mean, just a kind of strange game, and especially uh, in Game Four for it to happen and crazy runs each direction, and you know, a lot of the times when. Curry and Durant are really cooking. They're hitting tough shots, and those weren't going in. And uh, miss dunk from Dream, like it just so much weird stuff, and just a, a weird game overall. And uh, kind of cool to like see a, a close conference finals game. Um, do you have any theories on why we saw uh, crazy uh, margins of victory? I mean, I, I think every single one was double digits. Many of them. 20 plus uh in the first let's see that would have been six six games of those two series do you have any do you have any theories i know i i saw someone uh espouse the idea that it might be because there's so many more threes now and i don't know that i necessarily believe in that one but i guess i could kind of see that variance wise like you can get uh, larger margins. Do you have any thoughts theories anything like that i don't know if i really do i mean i think the margin for when one of these teams, especially in the West, when one of these teams is playing well, the margin of error for the other team is it becomes extremely narrow, mm-hmm. I guess, or or you know the the bar is very high, right? When, when either of these teams is playing at their close to their best, the the margin of error is very low, and we kind of saw that in probably the first three games. Probably tonight was not either team necessarily playing at a super high level, unless you want to say defensively. Um, but yeah, I mean, my first reaction is, oh well, the, kind of what you're saying, like, well, you know, high variance because you're taking lots of, of threes and things like that. But I mean, we also talked during the season that the Rockets take so many threes and, and the Warriors don't take as many. But I mean, these teams, uh, you know, when you take 40 threes, like you're not going to go 0 for 40, you know, <laughs> like yeah. like in a if you take 15, you could go three for 15. But when your sample is 40 shots, it's it's harder to completely you know like y- y- your sample is almost big enough that you're you're going to smooth out some of the the cold stretches <laughs> yeah. over the course of a game so I-, I don't know i don't know if i really buy that argument either but i think certainly um you know we've kind of seen that that both of these teams do kind of ha- i mean i mean we saw it with the bucks we saw it with a lot of like younger teams you know this idea of especially when in these kind of home road situations like teams kind Kind of come out when they need to win and they play differently versus when they've maybe don't mm-hmm. quote unquote need to win or the pressure isn't quite as as on them and I, yeah it's just strange I mean even with the two best teams in the league in Houston and Golden State um, it still feels like these teams show up more when they quote unquote need to <laughs> and yeah. you know you would think that would be something that would differentiate the very best teams that they're just more consistent they're not you know. And I don't want to say not showing up in in you know I, I wouldn't say the Warriors like didn't show up tonight or didn't show up in Game Two, but um, I, I don't know. I think it still goes to show that basketball is is still there, there's still sort of an uh, an energy slash mental psychological side to this, which as much as you can be aware of it and try to compensate for it and say, well, we're not going to have a letdown. You know, we're going to, we're going to come out and play as hard as in game two, if you're the Warriors as we did in game one. And we're going to, you know, try to, you know, basically stomp them out in game two. It's hard. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's like the human condition or something that, that we're kind of seeing. It's just, it's just really hard to kind of always be, have that, that edge on another team, especially when, the pressure is shifting as it, as it has. So I, I, I don't know. I guess I, I, 
I offered some theories there, but really I, I don't know if there's a good answer for it um, because, again, I mean, yeah, you'd expect some of these, more of these games to be close, and obviously we, you know, especially in these conference finals, we've gotten, what, one close game out of eight tries now. I got one. Um, let, tell me, uh, you, you have a little bit more, uh, a few more years on me and maybe a little bit more uh, of a knowledge base, but one thing I've been curious about is, um, and I think we saw this in the the Bucks Celtics series, and we saw it again when the Celtics played uh, the Cavaliers in Game Three. Is I do feel like, and th- th- let's just use Brad Stevens as an example. I feel like if you go down bigish in Game Three, that you have in you you kind of have a decision to make at halftime. You can make your adjustments and try to win game three or you can say you know what we're gonna play it the same way we played in the first half if it works out that's great we'll steal a game if it doesn't we're gonna save our adjustments for game four and then really kind of blitz the other team with those adjust adjustments and i thought about that theory and i think it's both bad and also terrible um but I'm curious. Do you feel like that's how series has like have always been coached? Like, I don't have enough frame of reference for like basketball in the '80s. Like, were was that type of game gamesmanship going on with Don Nelson? Like, I don't know. I, I don't know if he saved a strategy or uh, you know kind of saved an adjustment. But I do feel like that is something that I, I think it's developed a little bit since I've been watching and analyzing basketball. That now it does feel like you, you know certain coaches do save stuff because you don't want to give up that adjustment or let the other team see that adjustment and get some reps against it and have that opportunity to, you know, break it down on film, walk through it and shoot around, uh, in between games, stupid, good. Where, where your head's at? I don't know if it's stupid. I mean, it's always easier to, I mean, you know, to, to make big sweeping, um, dramatic adjustments within a game is just, I mean, it's fundamentally harder because mm-hmm. again, you don't have the benefit of being able to rewatch film. You don't necessarily have the benefit of having a long conversation with your staff or your stats guys or, you know, your front office guys or whatever, right? Your scouts, you can't, you just don't have yep. as much data or, or, you know, you're trying to do stuff on the fly. So I think it's not only natural that there are fewer kind of broad adjustments, um, in within a game basically and I think a lot of teams also, a lot of coaches at least, probably also are wary of of kind of making panic moves or totally changing things necessarily unless they're really trying to send a message. So um, I don't know. I've, I'm always I'm always a little skeptical about you know when people talk about like oh so you know Pop isn't going to show any of his best stuff mm-hmm. until you know game five of a playoff series or something because um, because again the same. I, yeah I mean and and. And I think, uh, for me, a big piece of it is, it's one thing if, like, you know, like, the death lineup, you don't want to, like, overplay a lineup because it's hard or physically taxing. I mean, that that's that's different from we're trying to just, like, hide some adjustment or, you know, not give something away. Um, so I, I kind of, I don't know, I kind of struggle with that a little bit, this idea that, you know, the coaches are playing, you know, eight-dimensional chess all the time. <laughs> and yeah. um, I, I think, in general, it's just... You, you kind of stick with what works and you, you don't panic. I mean, as Bucks fans, I think we've often been um, negative on Jason Kidd kind of randomly throwing in guys 
who haven't played for three games in a third quarter of a game and you know just sort of like throwing throwing shit against the wall that that kind of mindset and i think probably most coaches their first inclination is not to do that and if they're going to make a more dramatic change it's going to be after kind of more contemplation and and discussion and you know maybe even practice and things like that so i think that's maybe why um and also i mean we should note too like the about the idea of why aren't there more close games i mean the idea that oh the more three-pointers creates more variance i mean it also creates a higher likelihood you can come back in any game right i mean because of three-point shot and you know again teams can go cold for five ten minutes easily right um we saw the warriors heck go you know score 12 points in the last quarter tonight um you know, are you ever really out of a game, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when you're down 20, 25 points, I think teams are a lot less likely to give up than, or, or at least they are a lot less likely. And I think the, the odds of being able to come back to, in today's game, given, um, you know, pace is picked up, uh, shooting is obviously, you know, creates bigger variance and, and does create sort of an ability to go on these, you know, more extended runs over especially shorter periods of time. I think actually that would, you know, make you less likely to give up, less likely to kind of mail yeah. in a game and say, "All right, we'll save it for for next game." So, anyway, uh, happy to hear other theories, but my my general idea, I don't I don't know, I I don't think, I think all those things sort of maybe even out a little bit the variant stuff and also just the ability to come back, um, mm-hmm. and so so I don't know, I don't know if there's a good explanation for why we have seen um, fewer fewer close games. I think I think maybe in the Boston series, like Boston just being young has maybe lent, led them to being worse on the road especially offensively um and the Cavs uh role players being trash has also yeah, led to yeah. you know the effect of role players I, right. I, that probably makes more sense there's probably the being not good other than <laughs> other than lebron yeah yeah i think there's probably some easier ideas than grand theories uh at hand there um before we move on to what we actually want to talk about today um one thing i wanted to mention uh tweet of the night goes to chris middleton uh who if you you haven't gotten you have not been able to watch the game yet frank but uh in the closing moments the the chris paul went to the line uh with a half second left and had a chance to put the uh, Rockets up four, missed the first one, and then had the decision, do you make the second one? Uh, the Warriors still had a timeout, so they'd be able to advance the ball um, and have half a second left to tie it, or do you miss it? And he decided to make it, so he made it. Warriors took their timeout, and they were inbounded on the sideline with half a second left, and you would say, I mean, how are you going to get a shot off? Well, Chris Middleton tweets out, down three, dot, 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 0.5 seconds left, and then hands out emoji. Uh, shruggy hands out to the side emoji. Yep, that's, that's what Chris Middleton did in Boston in game one, uh, which maybe you know it hurts a little bit to think about because they didn't end up winning that game, but still a crazy shot. So tweet of the night, Chris Middleton, for reminding everyone that he, he did exactly what they were trying to do. And Chris and Steph Curry did not actually get the shot off, right? No, that wouldn't have counted. It would not have. So Steph Curry, who, I mean, I think everybody would assume Steph Curry has a faster trigger than, <laughs> than Chris Middleton. But um, even even uh, Curry from 22 and change in the corner versus Chris from, how far away was Chris? 40, 40 <laughs> feet, 43 feet. Um, that, that still is a, just an utterly incredible shot. I, 
you know, to be honest, I I really could not appreciate it in the moment because I I assumed that it was going to get overruled. I yeah, was just no way they were thinking count. it wasn't not gonna, a yeah, chance. Exactly. Yeah, crazy. Still can't believe you hit it. So by the way, what Chris really should have tweeted out was not that emoji, but that picture of him uh, shrugging, like looking over his shoulder <laughs> with hands up in the air. You know that At I feel the, like our friend yeah. I feel like our friend Jordan Tresky always has that one ready to go whenever yeah. there's. Uh, a reason so uh, Chris has his own I should, should, shouldn't even need his own emoji but yeah <laughs> alright um, so what we were going to talk about today uh, Mike Boonholzer obviously had his introductory press conference on Monday on Tuesday uh, he participated in the Mike Boonholzer media tour and I say that because he did interviews pretty much across the board with pretty much most of the radio stations in town. So I guess I'm trying to figure out exactly how to uh, talk about this, but I think the, the two things that people were concerned about were two things that, you know, we only kind of touched on in our like offset, like scrums after not during the actual press conference. Um, But it was, Dry Parker and the Bucks assistant coaches. Like those were those were two things that it, it seemed like as I watched people react to um, the interviews throughout the day, those were the things that people were concerned about. And I guess let's start with Jabari. Um, I, it's been kind of interesting to watch people uh, go through this because they just end up saying like, oh. Was Jabari mentioned in this answer? Was Jabari mentioned in that answer? Um, what was Jabari doing here? Uh, was did he say positive things about Jabari? Does he think there's a future with Jabari? Like, there's just this obsession over it, and I get it. Like, it's the biggest decision the Bucks have to make this off season. Like, I, there's, I, there's no doubt about that, and that's something that you and I have kind of talked about, right? Like, this was going to be no matter kind of what happened with the coach, any, no matter how far they win the playoffs, like this was going to be the summer of the Jabari decision and what the Bucks do. So I understand why uh, people were kind of trying to read in between the lines and count how many times he was mentioned and see how important he really felt to Mike Boonholzer. And I guess I would say, just stop it. Like you, You're not... Mike Boonholzer is is aware that everything he says is very important and going to be put under a microscope because uh, that's kind of how all of this works. But I just don't think there there was going to be anything valuable uh, to be had from any of those interviews today because there was never going to be a moment where Mike Boonholzer was like, oh, I'm really happy you brought up Jabari Parker because we have to get him signed period like that wasn't going to happen and there and the con the converse of that wasn't going to happen either like it wasn't going to be like well i don't care about jabari parker he can go and do whatever he wants like those things weren't going to happen he was just going to kind of do a nothing answer get through it and that was going to be that and i think i mean that's what i expect for the next month the next two months like it's going to be a, a long time of that and no matter how hard you read the tea leaves i don't think you're going to find anything out yeah and and, and again i this is always that difficult dance, right? Because, you know, uh, I mean, the extreme case is Giannis coming out and saying Jabari ain't going nowhere, um, which, yep. as we discussed when he said that, could have been 
in part due to just sort of being annoyed at the question and just kind of playing around with it, which again, I don't know if that's really a good idea, but, um, but yeah, I mean, if you're the coach or John Horst, you're in that weird spot where you don't really want to tip your hand. You don't want to necessarily make it sound like there's no chance that Jabari could be gone. Um, but you also don't want to, you know, make other teams think that, oh, this guy is eminently available and just sign him an offer sheet and we're, we're done with him, right? Because you're not getting any value from him as a sign and trade asset that way. You do have to kind of play this game where you hope that other teams um, do think you want him. And, and again, that this is sort of the, you know, the, the rub of, uh, of, of restricted free agency. Um, one thing um, I'll, I'll just kind of add on this front, um, there was a uh, – Bobby Marks did a, his offseason preview of the Bucks, which is always interesting because he you know, digs deep into the cap stuff. Um, and what he had thrown out was um, the possibility of offering Jabari – like basically he, you know, he kind of saying this weighing these options of either you wait for somebody else to make him an offer or um, you, know, you could – at least preemptively make an offer, which again, not that he's going to immediately take it, but, um, but basically he was saying, uh, I think a three year deal. I don't know if he was saying a, a, what kind of, a, of an option at the end, but, um, a three year, $40 million offer with a $12.4 million starting salary, because that would basically, um, give you, uh, a chance to use, uh, get Jabari back potentially. Um, but then also, uh, at, you know, at a number that could be tradable in the future as well, which is probably the, the, most important thing about you know potentially bringing Jabari back is do you have him at a number where he actually has a chance to be an asset because if he's not then that, that ain't good um, <laughs> but uh, but put him at a number not just, not just he can be an asset but also where you would have still your the full mid-level exception that you could stay under the luxury tax um, and again the mid-level around 8.6 million so so that that's an I think an interesting strategy um, in order to try to make sure that you do have freedom to spend your full mid-level this summer um i don't know i mean it's it's difficult because people talk are you know i know people are, are kind of I, I know people talk are a lot about potentially having cap space in 2019 but i don't know i mean it it's challenging right you're gonna have to be very careful because it probably means you know you're you're not getting jabari parker back this summer or you're trading him for something that is a, a one-year contract or you're using him to you know dump salary or something i, I don't know i mean it's kind of it, let me just say this the odds of the bucks especially as we know what they want to do which is they obviously want to be good next year the odds of the bucks putting themselves in a position where they're actually going to have potential cap space in 2019 um i'm i am not holding out hope for that um because a, I think it's you know again that means that it's more difficult to to add talent this year because you're not going to get as good players signing for one year. Um, and again, not that you shouldn't try to go for that because uh, I think a lot of times in free agency the best thing you can do is to not make big bets. Um, I think historically that that's been that's been proven. What was our uh, rule during? Uh, do no the, harm. Do no the, harm. The the, the Steve Von Horn Frank Ooh, Madden rule. Also, I was going to say our rule during the summer of 2016 was there's no such thing as a bad two year contract. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's true. Yeah. Uh, another thing you just kind of have to think about, like, and again, maybe in this situation it's one year instead if you are really targeting yeah. that summer of 2019. Um, but yeah, you have to find ways to kind of not lock yourself into 
something. And um, I guess what's also interesting is you look at a team like the Sixers where obviously they, they have a ton of cap space, so they're not, you know, the best uh, parallel for this. But what they were able to do was you find a guy like Marco Bellinelli, a guy like Ersan Ilyasova, and I, I don't imagine you, they're going to re-sign either of those two long-term deals. Uh, but you got them for this year, right? And you were able to uh, make a run, and they were able to be important players for you uh, throughout the season. So I, I just think, or excuse me, throughout their time in Philadelphia. So I do think there is, I mean, at least to some extent, uh, a lightning in a bottle kind of thing, right? Like you are trying to find some of those things, and that means you might have to uh, – be unafraid of only locking into four or five guys on your roster and then letting those other eight spots just flow, right? Like one year you have these guys in and maybe you it works out right with all of your role players and then they uh, get big contracts and go somewhere else and then you hope you find that magic again and you just kind of keep having to try to find those guys. And I do think that's kind of uh, – that, that to me will be interesting, like with Jabari because – I think one thing we end up talking about with him all the time is sign and trade, right? Like, you know, uh, anytime someone is thinking about, oh, I'm not sure if I want Jabari Parker back, it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, you just sign and trade him. Sign and trades aren't, they're not prevalent. Like, they're not things that happen a lot, and they don't happen a lot because you can just beat a sign and trade by saying, well, screw you, I'm going to, offer this guy so much money and you won't be able to match it and you won't want to match it. And then we don't have a sign and trade. Like there's just, there's so many ways to beat that where you have to have two parties that agree like, Hey, let's do this amicably and let's get this deal done so that you can sign our guy and we can get something out of it. Like what stops them from saying, no, I don't want to give you anything. I want to make this work for us. So um, I just think Jabari is going to be really interesting. And with all of that, like there will be lots for us to talk about. I don't think any of the talking points will come from the words that come out of Mike Budenholzer's mouth publicly. Right? Yeah, it'd be surprising. Um, I think, I, and so just to kind of illustrate the point of, of, you know, be careful about expecting all this cap space in 2019. So even if I say Eric Bledsoe walks that summer, which is, you know, not unreasonable, I would say he's got a $22.5 million cap hold. So if you want to retain his bird rights to, to go over the cap to be able to sign him, um, you know, if you keep both Bledsoe and Middleton cap holds, like you're not going to have any cap space. Um, and so really like, you know, your, your flexibility is going to be limited. Now, if you say Bledsoe walks, um, you really only have less than $10 million if you're keeping Middleton's cap hold um, of, of cap space. Now, that can improve to, um, let's say, over 12 if, as expected, the Toledovich uh, um, uh, medical retirement goes through, and so you wipe off the stretch salary, that $3.5 million. So, all right, then you've got let's say $12.5 million to spend in addition to spending a bunch of money on Chris Middleton, right? He's, his cap holds $19.5 million. Likely, if he continues on his current trajectory, he'd get more than that. Um, so, you know, again, like, if you let Jabari walk, if you don't sign any, 
you know, if you use your MLE this summer for only one year deals and you don't lock up anybody long term, um, you know, the, the flexibility payoff is, is not that you can go out and spend tons and tons of money on, uh, on free agents. Um, and you know, we didn't talk about Malcolm Brogdon, but he, his cap holds only a couple million dollars. And then, you know, if you want to keep him, you're gonna have to pay him a bunch more money. So, so yeah, it, it's it's hard. Like if you're thinking that you know you're gonna have max cap room to go sign Kemba Walker in 2019, um, simply by letting Bledsoe walk and not signing Jabari, you're not. Like you're <laughs> gonna have to you're gonna have to get rid of more salary. I mean, even if I forget what Kemba's max is gonna be, you know, just use him as an example, but um, you're probably gonna have to get rid of. At, you know, at least one more of the the Delhi Snell Henson contracts, mm-hmm. and probably more salary even beyond that, just to get to the point of you know being able to offer one max cap slot in addition to keeping Chris. So, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> As, adding adding guys uh, on big salaries is is really hard when you you know don't have tons and tons of guys on on uh, rookie contracts, and so. That's that's I think one of the challenges the Bucks have to figure out is do they, you know, you know it's like you're you're uh, gonna skip lunch because you you want to have a huge dinner, um, but are, is it worth it? Right? Like you're you gonna pass up everything here this off season? Is there really a payoff in 2019 in terms of what you're gonna get for it? Um, you know, or uh, I don't know what I don't know what your least favorite food is, Eric. But you know, are you gonna pass up a, um, you know half decent meal at lunchtime because you might get a great one for dinner but you know what if it's you know just a a day old arby's uh, for (laughs) dinner you know like is that are you kind of feeling like you wish you had some lunch at that point you know quite possibly so so yeah that this these are these are the challenges that that nba front offices have to make you know basically trading off the possibility in the future that you have flexibility you can do all this cool stuff and the reality that, well, maybe you just try to figure out what you have in the short term and, you know, you don't give away assets now. But again, I'm, I'm somebody who's been a Jabari skeptic and yep. here I am sort of leaving open the possibility that maybe there is some way that you are better off kind of keeping him again if you can get him at a number that that is low enough. I'm not 100% sure what the opposite of an advertisement or a live read is, but I think we're getting awfully close to it with Arby's. If anyone from yeah. their team listens, whew. This could be end up being a rough time for us. So um, the other thing I wanted to talk about. They have the meats, Eric. <laughs> so I've heard. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about with uh, the Mike Boonholzer media tour for the day was um, it's, and it's something that, you know, we asked about yesterday as we had our little bit of time uh, with Mike Boonholzer and John Horse after the press conference was, you know, the assistant coaches and how they try to create a staff and stuff like that. And, uh, Today, during uh, John Horst's interview with uh, with Homer and Gabe on ESPN Milwaukee, uh, they Homer had, I want to make sure I get this exactly right, uh, so it's very clear uh, because it, it it led to some freak out I think <laughs> among Bucks fans. But uh, Homer asked, Giannis is very close to Sean Sweeney. Is he going to be a part of your staff? And Boonholzer said, putting together a staff is a big part of being a head coach. I'm fortunate to have been a head coach for the last few years. I'm hoping and planning to bring a lot of my staff from Atlanta. And then how we build it, 
visiting with Sean and getting to know him and seeing how he fits with us. I look forward to that. I'll be doing that over the next few days and visiting with other people that I think could be a good fit and I think could help us going forward. Just figuring out what's best for our group and how we build a great staff. And there was a lot of panic about that because that suggested that Sean Sweeney might be back in Milwaukee and I think a large majority of Bucks fans do not want that. They do not want Sean Sweeney back in Milwaukee. And I think one of the reasons why he is discussed specifically is because of his work with Giannis Dedekumbo. We've seen him now for the last uh, two years spend every second of his day with Giannis pretty much. Like he's the, the one working with him after practices. He's the one that's going to Greece with him. He's going to Spain. He's just pretty much around Giannis all the time. So uh, there is kind of some thought like, you know, those two have developed a close relationship. Uh, then maybe that means the team will keep him around, you know, not to upset Giannis. And um, I guess as Mike Boonholder said, they're like, they're still, I think, figuring out exactly how uh, this is all going to go down and, you know, the staff that they're going to compile and that's going to take a little bit of time and they'll get that all figured out. But um, I do think, you know, I see why he would not want to just, you know, throw these people away just out of hand as soon as he gets there. Like, I'm just going to toss you out of here because, you know, maybe there is something useful. And, you know, even if you don't want to keep Sean Sweeney, maybe talking to him about things that he's found with Giannis could be helpful. Like, that could help you as a, a team trying to develop one of the best players in the NBA. So um, I think it all makes logical sense. I think, again, don't try to read it in between the lines because Mike Boonholzer is not trying to tell you something secretly. Um, he's not trying to whisper something in your ear in the middle of this interview. He is just, you know, kind of getting through this and uh, not trying to offend and trying to not answer questions as well and as friendly uh, as possible. And I guess for me, where my head at is at here is, and I'll ask you for yours in a second here, but with Sean Sweeney, there are two strengths for him, right? I, I believe he's, well, again, I should say, I think most Bucks fans would probably argue this, but his supposed strengths would be defense and player development. He was the Bucks defensive coordinator for uh, his time here while Jason Kidd was here, and then he was put in charge of helping develop Giannis. And those would be the two things that, you know, people really point to with Sean Sweeney and his work in Milwaukee. Mike Budenholzer. If you listen to our podcast yesterday, the two things that we talked about with Mike Boonholzer were defense and player development. So I struggled to believe, and, and again, the, maybe there's some role in you know how he's able to work with Giannis or something like that where he could serve some sort of purpose that aren't those two things. But if you're Mike Boonholzer and you've put together top five defenses for three years instead of one year, like Sean Sweeney did in Milwaukee, uh, and you've been able to teach defense and really have that be a strength, and then you've created Hawks University and all of these individual player development, uh, different with all these different players, you've been able to have that. I just can't imagine you have an interview with Sean Sweeney and you're like, you know what? I've been doing this defense and player development thing wrong all along. This is what I should be doing. I should be taking in his thoughts. 
and you know we should keep him and we'll let him have the same role like I just don't see that happening so uh, I understand you know kind of some of the concern but for me I I struggle to imagine a world where if Sean Sweeney is retained and again who knows if he would be retained if he is retained that he would be given the same roles and you know kind of responsibilities as he has now yeah it's just weird right um I, I don't know and again I I hope that I hope that if that that the Bucks aren't just doing something because they ask Giannis do you want Sean Sweeney around and he was like yeah Sean, Sean Sweeney you know we were he's my guy or whatever because again, I, I mean, it's it's the same thing with Jason Kidd. Like, Giannis's mindset is not that, you know, he's going to work with somebody for a long time, and then if you ask him should they fire him, you know, that that he's going to say yes. Um, I think you have to kind of take a step back from that. And again, I mean, if Giannis, if you think Giannis is going to go ballistic over something like this, then it, well, maybe you, you know you do consider that. But um, I, I don't know. It's like you know. It's like when I finished first grade, I went to second grade, and you know I didn't need to take my my first grade teacher with me, right? Like you, you I feel like in in a lot of ways, like you know, Giannis has has to at some point, you know, he's got to take his grad level courses now in in being a basketball player, and um, you know, whatever he learned from Sean Sweeney and Jason Kidd and all the rest of that coaching staff, um, you know, look, he got to where he was, and he's gotten a long way, and I think you know you can make a good case that all right. You know, uh, let let's see what what the next you know kind of next group can can maybe bring to him. Um, and and again, you know, maybe uh, Ben Sullivan, the the shot doctor uh, from from the Hawks staff, if he comes to Milwaukee, you know, maybe he's the guy who now needs the shot to work with to, to work with Giannis in particular on his jump shot. And you know, we read about how he helped fix Kent Bazemore. And you know, so again, I, I think there's value in 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 kind of making a progression and having a different coach at some point. And um and, and not just obviously not just a regular coach, but but also like a personal trainer type guy. And um obviously what has what is you know what Giannis has done has worked for him to date and you don't want to tell him that, you know, everything's been bad and, you know, whatever. <laughs> but uh but by the same token, I think maybe to take him to that next level, I think it's reasonable to say that you know, you, you don't just do the exact same thing over and over again just because, you know, it happened to work the last time. Because I think, again, ultimately that has a lot more to do with Giannis than, than anybody you put around him. So, um, so yeah, I think I would agree. I think it would be definitely surprising given Sweeney was sort of the kid protege to keep the kid protege around. Um, but, you know, also anything's possible, right? Sure. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, uh, again, as, as you said, I mean how many spots are really available and you know do you want sort of the outsider from the old regime sticking around when obviously ownership front office felt that it was very important that there be a break with the old regime and that this this new group led by Mike Budenholzer come in so um so yeah I don't know I'm I'm I am not stressing about it I will wait and see where the where the chips fall and I, I I'm, I'm guessing it won't take maybe that much longer before we find out I would agree and you know we'll find out when we find out so until then you know we'll keep waiting and we'll keep breaking stuff down um i was going to say as we end the podcast here um if you have suggestions for things that you want to hear us you know kind of break down we haven't really done like end of the season grades or anything like that and i don't know that i 
tend to find that content all that compelling. Um, so I don't know that we will do that, but you know, if there's some stuff you guys kind of want to hear us go through or, or things you want us to break down, uh, I think now is kind of the time for us to do that. Obviously we have the draft coming up in about a month. Uh, so we will spend some time on that, but, uh, in between that, We'll also be getting ready for free agency, but there will be days in there where, you know, we'll have to try to do some other stuff. So if there's stuff you want to hear, let us know. Uh, just tweet at us at Lockdown Bucks or at Eric underscore name or at F NBA. So for today, that is going to be it for Frank Madden. I'm Eric name. This has been Lockdown Bucks. We'll talk to you tomorrow.